0: is yeah. keep on kicking them down. Lord, it's a damn shame. What the world's gotten to for people like me, people like you, is I could just wake up and it not be true, but it is. Oh, it is. Living in the new world with an old soul. These rich men know the rich men
1: Know
2: what you think, know what you do. Welcome back to Real Voices of the Game. I'm Dave D'Agostino, and I'm joined here by my co-host and star of this show, Bob Schaefer, and this is Touch 'Em All, episode 333. have got a great guest for you today, a Hall of Famer. Um, actually, my favorite uh, Chris Berman nickname as well. I thought about that yesterday, but I won't reveal that now because that will spoil our guest and Bob's intro. But before we get to our guest, I want to thank our audience. 55,000 and growing subscribers. We appreciate your support. You helped us get on iHeartRadio's very powerful podcast network. We're listened to in 74 countries, grassroots, MLB front offices. Make sure you give this show five stars after it and write some great comments for Bob because we battle the analytics of the podcast world just like they do in Major League Baseball. want to announce our special new partnership with Blackout Coffee. Uh, We're going to give our listeners a code, so get your pen and piece of paper handy, and we'll put it on social media as well. If you go to Blackout Coffee, and you go to when you go to the checkout center, type in David, capital D A V I D, all caps, followed by the number twenty. You'll get twenty percent off your total purchase, and uh, that's a, a thank you to all of our supportive listeners out there. So, Blackout Coffee, get your holiday coffee there. Uh, they've got a great slogan: mm-hmm. "Be awake, not woke." Uh, very big supporters of our uh, Second Amendment here as well. So, great guys. I'm actually going to meet with the CEO. This Saturday, when I drive my son to Tennessee for his catching camp. So, uh, but with that, Bob, I want to welcome right, you thanks. back to your show, uh, and Dave, want you to introduce your to special we guest. An today. Honor to
0: have uh, Hall of Famer Bert Blylevin here. Um, Bert's started his twenty-two year career as a nineteen year old out of high school. Pitched like maybe a year and a half in the minor leagues. <clears throat> Excuse me, pitched till he was forty-one. Twenty-two years <clears throat> in seventeen years, he threw over two hundred innings. This year, there was three pitchers that threw over 200 innings. Uh, He's uh, one year, he threw 325 innings. He had 40 complete games. I mean, 40 starts. That means every fourth day he started, he had 25 complete games. That'll never be done again. Um, In his career, he won 287 games. That'll never be done again. uh, After that, he became a pitching coach when he retired. He... uh, Became a pitching coach uh, with the Netherlands and the WBC. He recently retired from being a color analyst for the Minnesota Twins for about fifteen years. It was twenty five years. Oh, twenty five years. Jeez. Okay, I guess I had it wrong there. <laughs> but Bert had one of the best curveballs in baseball. I remember, fortunately or unfortunately, I coached against him my first year in the big leagues, nineteen eighty eight, and we're playing Minnesota and he's pitching. And George Brett comes back to the dugout after Bert struck him out, and he says. Uh, how the hell am I going to hit that pitch? That curveball starts in my neck, ends up my ankles, and somewhere in between it goes over the plate. He said, I can't hit that. I said, well, a lot of other guys have hit it either. He struck out over 7,000 people, I think. But anyway, further ado, here's Bert, and we'll get it going here.
1: Well, Bob, thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to our conversation here with you and Dave, and uh, you know, looking forward to doing this podcast. Uh, Bobby, mind if I toss?
2: And this is this is from one of our other Hall of Fame co hosts, Jim Cott, who has a special relationship with Bert. Mind if I toss Jim's question at him to start the show? Okay, so Bert, uh, Jim Cott, uh, he and I co host a show called Cott's Corner. It'll be on later on today. That's the back end of a triple header Tuesday for Halloween. But uh, he spoke very highly of you as as a teammate and your time together with the twins and even post career, and uh, he said his direct quote, He was such a he's such a fine young man, uh, when I first met him coming into Major League Baseball. <laughs> then he got mis- mischievous a little bit. Um so I, I asked him, I pushed him, pushed him, pushed him, and he said, You ask Bert first, and if he doesn't explain, I'll explain it on my show later. So I, I kinda of throw it to you here. What is he talking about when he uh, said he got a little mischievous?
1: Well, you put it this way. I was born in Holland. Uh, you know, you have mentors in your life. My my mom and dad were my my heroes, my mentors. And, uh, you know, we went from Holland to Canada and came to the United States in 1957. And my dad, uh, we didn't know a lot about baseball, but my dad every night came home with a joke. He was a bumper straightener. Uh, he straightened bumpers for a living. And, and uh, you know, we were seven of us. And most of all, he, bumped, he straightened, straightened my head for a while. Uh, but, uh, you know what? Uh, I just, I fell in love with a game of baseball through my pops. Uh, you know, it's sad to say we lost Frank Howard uh, yesterday. Uh, my dad idolized Frank Howard as one of his heroes growing up. But I think uh, going back and thinking about getting to the big leagues as quick as I did, less than really a year out of high school, I was pitching uh, against the Washington Senators and Frank Howard was in that lineup. But... When I went to spring training in 1970, um, of course there's Harmon Killebrew, Rod Carew, Tony Oliva, you know Jim Perry, who won a saw Young in 1970, and then then Kitty Cott, Kitty, 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 mm-hmm. uh, you know they kind of took me. Jim Cott especially being Dutch himself, took me in as almost a younger brother, and uh, he was my mentor. I think I uh, at 18 years old I was I followed him and Jim Perry and Dave Boswell and Louis Tiant. Those were the four starters for the twins back in 70. I, I, I followed them like a little puppy dog. And I, I watched the work habits that they had and was very, very impressed uh, You know, and with their running habits and how they got in shape uh, to get ready for the season. This was a spring training in 1970. So yeah, Kittycott, uh, he's always been a great friend. He's always been there in my corner and uh, just a class man. As far as the pranks and stuff, uh, that came from my dad, just having fun. You know, we, I pitched every fourth day, but as a starter, is the greatest job in the world because you get three days off. Uh, so you sit on the bench and, you know, you watch the game, but you also get bored watching the game. You'd rather be out there pitching. So you find things like, you know, lighting guys' shoes on fire or, you know, putting bubble gum on, on, on somebody's hat and putting a cup on there. And uh, they didn't have the cameras they did today. You, it, I don't think you can be as... Uh, uh, do that stuff today that uh, we did back in the 70s because a lot of the games weren't, you know, televised every day. So, but it's, it, uh, you know, baseball had been very, very good to me. And uh, as Tony Oliva would say, but uh, it's just a lot of fun. I miss the camaraderie with the guys. And I think uh, part of that is watching the World Series, what's going on now. Uh, it's just a, a lot of fun to see both these clubs the Rangers and the diamondbacks how they are a unit and that's what you try to do as a, a player and a coach or a manager is get your get your guys uh, thinking all on the same page I think
0: like uh, baseball has serious problems with a pitching situation now a couple last week both teams used eight pitchers in a game I think tonight's gonna be another one of those eight pitcher games you know relief uh, bullpen but it's amazing you can't find four guys, five guys who can pitch at least five innings. Now, now they have the new things. I imagine if when you were pitching, if somebody came out to the mound and said, uh, third time through the lineup, you're out of there, what would you say?
1: Uh, Tom Kelly used to tell me he hated coming out to the mound because he said there was foam coming out of your mouth, <laughs> and I was not going to take you out. And uh, I think throughout my career, what, 242 complete games, you know, that was a goal for us back in the 70s and 80s to – Give the bullpen a day off. Yeah, the game has changed. The analytics, all that stuff, uh, you know, pitch count. Uh, People used to say, you know, what was your pitch count? I said, well, I don't know going into a ball game. Sometimes, you know, it's up to the hitters. The hitters let me know when I was done, sometimes in the first inning. Hopefully not. But, (laughs) uh, you know, that's the way it was back then. So you went out and you performed and uh, you tried to do the best you can to keep your club in the game. I lost a lot of close ball games uh, back in the seventies, two to one, three to two, but a lot of those were complete games. I never minded losing a ball game as long as I knew that you know I would I could keep my club in the game. But well, the thing about that, Bird has twenty five complete games, but people don't realize
0: that you have a chance to win the day before because you know he's going to go maybe eight nine innings every time, so you can use your bullpen the day after your bullpen's fresh.
1: Yeah, there was a time, Bob, and I don't mean to interrupt. That uh, you know, I think in well, in 1973, I pitched a 3.25, and I was 20 and 17 with a 2.5 ERA, and it was like I'd go out there, and you know, I was with the Twins. Guys would score six, seven home. They they they'd score six, seven runs the day before I pitched. Then when I pitched, they'd score one or two. Next day, they score six or seven. And you sit on the bench and you go, but you guys don't like me? You know, come on, man. I was just in a bad spot. Uh, I just so happened to face, you know, the probably the other team's ace, like Catfish Hunter or somebody like that. So, you know, it was going to be a tough game. What's the...
2: When, you, Bert, when you're looking at the, the way pitching is today, and Bob alluded to it, that starters don't go as deep.
1: Well, when, I think when well, did that I change? The five Why man did that rotation change? came back in the late 80s, uh, you know, when they started pushing starters back. Uh, you know, Tommy John had the surgery. Uh, you know, they kind of opened up guys getting hurt, elbow surgery, and then coming back. Uh, somewhere along the line, Somebody came up with 100 pitches, anything over that, you know, you're going to be under more duress. Uh, I don't really know, uh, don't have the answer to that. All I know, it has to start if they want to have starters go back to the way it was, which I don't think it ever will with all the analytics that are in the game today. But it has to start in the minor leagues. I remember Bob Boone tried to go to a four-man staff back in the 80s, I think late 80s, and Luke. Uh, Was it Apier? Apier Apier got hurt, and that kind of put a you know kind of went back to a five man rotation. But uh, I don't know. uh, I don't. I don't believe in a pitch count. I don't believe in all the analytics. I believe analytics are good for the game of baseball. But even the scouts, you know, that go out and see these players, they're eliminating a lot of that. Why? Because the analytics, but what scouts are able to do, they're able to sit and watch that kid's reaction. You can't. All the analytics in the world can't show what kind of in that heart of that kid and the determination that he has. So, yeah, analytics are good, but also the human being. You got to look at that person you're looking at uh, as a scout.
0: Well, I think uh, you know when I first started coaching, and even toward the end of my coaching career, in 2010. Mentality of a starting pitcher was I'm going to start the game, I want to finish the game. I let Sid Fernandez throw 155 pitches one day in AAA. He wanted he wanted to finish the game. So we sent him out there with 130. And at that time it wasn't really hard and set, but 130 was a lot. So I told the pitching coach, John Cumberland, we're not counting anymore. Anyway, he got to 155. He finished the game. We won three to one. He felt really good about himself. And he pitched 10, 12 years after that in the major league, so it didn't hurt him. But he was strong. And I think, you know, the in fact, he threw that many pitches the next time, 120 was easy. And I don't think these guys overload. They're so worried about the pitch count, a lot of them don't get better. I watch my league games. They pitch 70 pitches. See you later, next guy. A guy gets in a jam in the fifth inning. See you later, next guy. They don't give the guy a chance to get out of a jam, so they never really learn how to pitch.
1: Bob, to be honest with you, I, was broad, I broadcast 25 years for the Minnesota Twins starting uh, about in the mid-90s, uh, uh, 94, 95, somewhere in there. But uh, it got to the point my last couple of years, pitchers would walk off the mound after five innings, and you look at the scoreboard, they have the pitch count. If I was a pitching coach, I wouldn't want the pitch count up on the scoreboard. But he's walking in and he think he's he must have saw, you know, he threw ninety-two pitches and in five innings, which is ridiculous anyway. And he actually tipped his hat. And he, he only he didn't give up any runs. He had, he gave up two hits, had five shutout innings. Saw that he threw 92 pitches, kicked his hat. And, and uh, I've been known to cussing on on the air, uh, and, but I had really held my – I thought I, I did a good job of not cussing on the air at that time. <laughs> well, it used to be like
0: five innings, you get a win. Wins don't mean anything anymore. It's important to no. you guys, which is a joke. Uh, like I said, you won 487 games in a, I mean, 287 games in major leagues. That won't be done again because it takes – four pitches for the guy to get a win. But the pitches, stunning pitches aren't concerned about wins because Propellerhead said it's not important for a starting pitcher to get a win. But yeah, like there's said,
1: more Tommy John surgeries now yeah. than there ever have been. So there's, there's a reason why, uh, you know, everybody's trying to throw 100 miles an hour when you're a better pitcher. You watch that uh, Montgomery with the Texas Rangers. I like him. I like what Kelly did in the uh, for uh, Arizona. You know, they attacked the strike zone. Uh, and they kept the ball down, and they moved, you know, in and out. Uh, they pitched rather than throw.
0: Well, I think the training. I mean, you got to tell me when you pitched. Did you lift weights? I watched you to go through the weight room once a while I see's pitches lifting these heavy weights. It's just a matter of you know. Call it Dr. Elotrod because you're going to go see him pretty soon when you do this. You
1: know, Bob, I, my my theory was my leg strength. Uh, I ran distance. I ran cross country in high school, along with other sports: basketball, baseball, one year of football. But I saw these guys running cross-country and I thought, you know what, that's for my endurance. And even at a young age, I ran throughout my career uh, distance. Uh, I'm talking five, sometimes 10 miles I would run, especially if if you have a bad game. I remember I had a bad game in Houston and I could have won up probably when I was with the Pirates Uh, in Houston. I could have went out and, you know, went up to the clubhouse and had some beers and felt sorry for myself. I put my running gear on and I went out and I ran in July in Houston along the frontage road out of, off the dome. And I kept running and running. I felt like Forrest Gump. And finally I stopped and turned around. I couldn't see the dome anymore. I wanted to call Uber, but I went back, uh, you know, by the time I got back, I got knocked out like in the third inning. By the time I got back, it was like the ninth inning. We lost the game. I got the loss for that game, but I got that frustration out of me by running distance. I always believed that my arm is nothing more than a whip, that if my legs get tired, my arm's going to get tired. So I made sure that my legs were always strong. And I go to spring training for three weeks with the twins. I don't see these pitchers running distance. I don't see them. uh, And even in a booth, I saw pitchers starting to tire after four or five innings because their foundation, their legs were not strong. They run little cones. They run, you know, PFPs. That's it. Go out and run. Get that strength up. That's my suggestion to pitchers. Weights, no. I did the Dr. Job. Little exercises, maybe with a five-pound weight, more circular, but never heavy weights. Well, I think that's
0: killed the game. I think I remember that Minnesota Twins were the last team to have a weight room in the spring training, if I remember right. And nobody got hurt to speak of. I mean, now all the injuries for me start in the weight room. They fall in love with the weights and make them look better make them feel better to a certain extent. But it's so harder and they all get hurt. It's amazing how many guys – what did you say, Dave Lewis? How much in money spent on guys on AIL this year?
2: We spent uh, – Major League Baseball spent almost a billion dollars on injured players this year, and 65% of that was pitchers. And ironic, Bert, you had mentioned too that the, the shift to, uh, I guess, shorten the amount of innings pitchers throw had, has to do with their health. Irony how the the training has caused more injuries now than ever before uh, with this stuff. What's your thoughts on the max velocity? Like, I think uh, I what know is what max the, velocity? I you know, they one. used
1: to say, "How hard did you throw?" And I used to say, "As hard as I could." Uh, you know, I I grew up again watching you know Jim Cott and Jim Perry. I saw Jim Perry when the saw Young in nineteen seventy with a a slider that maybe was twelve inches from from you know from East to West, but, you know, he had pinpoint control. He knew how to pitch. Uh, Jim caught the same way. Jim wasn't a, a power pitcher, but he was a finesse pitcher. He pitched out there, not through, he pitched. And I, that's kind of how I've learned, uh, you know, through the pitching coaches too. Marv Grissom changed my delivery because I was kind of throwing really across my body really bad. And uh, finally, he said, you know, you keep landing on that heel and your left foot is landing toward the third baseline rather than toward the catcher. He said, you're going to, you know, your career is going to be short. So he brought out a folding chair. This is the thinking of, of pitching coaches back then. He put a folding chair down on the ground where I landed. And I looked at Mr. Grissom. I said, Mr. Grissom, I said, what if I land on that chair? He said, well, then you're break your goddamn neck. Won't you? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so he got me to open up and utilize the foundation of, of my pitching was was from the waist waist down. That was my strength. My arm, again, as I mentioned before, is just more to whip. And you try to get out front and you throw that ball, work both sides of the plate. Uh, I watched all the time. I got to watch, you know, Bob Gibson, uh, you know, pitched with Gaylord Perry. I, you know, I saw Steve Carlton. He was a teammate of ours in 1987. but when I was with the Pirates, watch him pitch. Kids today, I don't know if they go out and they watch somebody that's successful, like a Verlander, or sad to say Scherzer got hurt in the series, but guys that that know how to pitch, you become a pitcher, not a thrower. Right, they had a touch. I mean,
0: Greg Mannix had a touch. and That's what it was. They are pitchers, not throwers, like you said. The art of pitching is almost lost now. It's like, how hard do you throw? You come out of bullpen to 100 miles an hour, and their velocity gets better, but I read the other day that some pitcher, I forget his name now, he's going home. He's going to get himself stronger. He's going to throw the weighted ball every day. And, I mean, I don't know how good that does. All he knows is that you might as well get a doctor's appointment because it's going to happen. I mean, the yeah, weighted ball is not going to, it's about pitching.
1: Yeah, Bob, you mentioned Greg Maddox. I, I love the history part of the game, and I think there are two pitchers as a right-hander and a left-hander. To me, Greg Maddox might be one of the best pitchers that ever pitched in a game of baseball as a right-handed pitcher. And a left-handed pitcher, I go with Warren Spawn. Mm-hmm. You know, guys that okay. knew how to pitch and play the game the right way, and uh, you know the records show for themselves. What Spawn won three hundred and sixty-three games. Maddox three hundred and twenty mm-hmm. or thirty. Uh, they were they were pitchers. Uh, you imagine in today's game, okay. Dave and Bob, that you tell Nolan Ryan that he's on a hundred pitch count. No, uh, he didn't get loose until he threw a hundred. Well, he's 278
0: some games, I think.
2: Yeah. Are uh, are guys working on their craft as much? And by that, I mean, you know, are they getting on the mound in between starts? Uh, And and part of what I see on, you know, the the social media drives me crazy, but every time a kid steps on the mound, they're throwing a finite number of pitches as hard as they possibly can throw Has to – Post to working on balance, rhythm, timing, feel like you guys are talking about. Our guys, as you're watching, I mean, you've been in the broadcast booth 25 years. You got to watch the I think 20s. they do. You, guys uh, you know, craft. it's more of the analytics.
1: Even in spring training, a, a guy will be out on the mound, uh, say a, a, a Sonny Gray, who had a great year as a free agent, maybe uh, not in Twins uniform next year, uh, or Joe Ryan. I, I like Joe Ryan a lot, but, you know, even in spring training, they would throw on the side and they would throw a fastball down and away. And then they'd stop because there's a camera behind the catcher and there's a camera behind them to make sure that that pitch was exactly, you know, where he wanted it. And it's like, if you don't know that, you have to look that up. Phil, come on, man. Mm-hmm. That's that feel and touch. But uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's just a different game that these pitching coaches expect these guys to be almost like robots. And we're not robots. It's all about
0: velocity. It's all about velocity now. I mean, there's four things to get a hitter around. Velocity, change of speeds, location, and movement. And the guys who can change speeds, locate, are the ones that are going to win and be consistent? <clears throat> they get lower pitch counts. They get ahead in the count, and they do what they have to do. But everything, the first time somebody asks about a pitch—is what's his velocity? <clears throat> well, unless you throw over 100, I don't think it matters. Because 92 right now, or 94 is average velocity. It used to be like 90.
1: Yeah, Bob, you mentioned that, you know, I came up at 19. My first trip as a player uh, in a Twins uniform to Anaheim, Don Drysdale was doing games with Dick Emberg, and Mark Grissom was my first pitching coach in the big leagues, and he knew Mr. Drysdale. And I grew up in Southern California watching Koufax, and I learned my, Kouf- my curveball from actually listening to Vince Scully describe Sandy Koufax's drop. Of course, back then in the 60s before – Gibson and Drysdale had all those great years, and McLean in '68. The mound was pretty much 15 inches with a great steep uh, toward home, toward home plate. Now it's 10 inches, and the angle has to be on every every field. But I had a chance to sit down and listen to Don Drysdale in the dugout in 1970, and I didn't, uh, I you know, I didn't say a word. I just listened. And his philosophy on pitching, uh, was something that I took throughout my twenty two year career about being aggressive out on a mound and watching the hitter in the box, how he's approaching. If you're throwing a fastball away, you know, is he is he hitting it the other way or is he opening up a little bit? And if he's if he's opening up, you know, you and and he's looking for that ball in, then then work away. But if he's leaning out over the plate, bust his butt inside a couple times. You know, don't be afraid to drill somebody. And Drysdale was known for that. He'd knock down his own mother if he had to, if the game was on the line. But, you know, one thing I think pitchers ought to look at, there's a chart you can go to tedwilliams.com hitting chart or tedwilliamshittingchart.com. Look at that. He's got a ball in every part of the strike zone. And Ted Williams, one of the greatest hitters of all time, saying and showing that if every ball was in that box to him down and away as a left-handed hitter, down and away he would hit 230, 240, 250. What does that tell you as a pitcher? You have to control down and away. That's why I like that Kelly from Arizona. I thought he did a great job of working both sides of the plate working down now with the launch angle all pitchers are trying to pitch up in the zone well you leave a fastball up in the zone and, you, and which i did a lot i gave up what 430 home runs whatever but uh you know you have to be aggressive and you have to be you have to attack the strike zone well, you, you can't said, allow walks
0: you said it best a located fastball is still the best pitch in baseball and unfortunately these kids i watch this florida state league i watch higher minors i watch the big leagues they don't use their fastball enough. They want to trick them with a breaking ball, slider. And this Florida State League had more guys throwing sliders. And I remember asking a radio guy, "What's it deal with these sliders?" He said, "A well, pitching coach tells me you get more outs with sliders. What well, you do in a low A because they swing at stuff out of you know out of strikes on in the dirt and so forth." But you know, a minor league pitching coach or even a big league pitching coach that F should make a pitcher better. You know, make them better. Number one, starts with a located fastball, like you said, down away fastball, get strike one. And then use the rest of the strike zone for your other pitches. But you just can't, you know, you just can't throw out there and try to get break a ball, break them ball, break a ball. I remember a couple years ago in spring training, one of the analytical guys said to Scherzer, you know, they hit like 138 off your slider. You should throw more sliders. And Scherzer said, well, let me tell you, if I threw more sliders, if I hit 238, because I know it's coming. So, I mean, it's a, you know, it's, it's a technique. It's a strategy, how to pitch the hitters, how to put them away, how to get to a point where you can put them away and so forth. And, Unfortunately, it's all about power pitches. Look at the pitch, look at the spin rate and all this kind of stuff. And I don't know. I think the pitching needs a lot of help.
2: Bert, what are some things you mentioned, uh, Kelly, from Arizona? What are some things that you like about him as a pitcher? Because he's – Virtually unknown uh, to the average baseball fan, and, and for those that didn't follow Arizona, he's really—I've been very impressed with him in the playoffs. Well, first what of all, some I things think in his the biggest thing, and
1: only what I don't know that much about him, but listening to the, you know John Smoltz talk about him and, and Joe Davis talk about him, the kid had some failure. Uh, I think one thing when you get to the big leagues, or even if you sign a minor league contract, you cannot be afraid to fail. You have to go about your business and be as consistent as you can be. But uh, I like him because, you know, I always told myself three things out on the mound. Simple. Keep it simple, stupid. Okay. Stay back. Stay tall. Work out front. What does that mean? You know, I told Joe Ryan this. I've told other pitchers this. Stay back, meaning stay over the rubbers. Allow your arm to catch up to your body. If you go out too quick, your arm's going to drag and you're not going to be able to Put the best pitch, you know. Location, uh, stay back. Work out front. Meaning, you know, uh, stay back, stay tall. You know, there aren't too many guys like Quisenberry and you know Kent DeColvey that that threw from underneath. Most of us are are tall pitchers, other than maybe Tom Seaver. You know, Tom Seaver was a driver. He drove low, but stay back, stay tall. Meaning, stay over the rubber. And then work out front. Get your arm out front. Reach out toward that catcher's glove. And don't throw it to the glove. Throw it through the glove. Those little simple things that I just told myself over and over. I had a glove one time that had all kind of cuss words on it because I was calling myself all these names by not remembering. Stay back, stay tall, work out front. Simple. I like can-
2: like it. now with, with the advice that you gave is phenomenal. And those are things that young pitchers pro pitchers should all be grabbing onto. You, uh, learn from listening, talking to watching veteran pitchers before you is major league baseball using guys like yourself well, to that degree I'm, right now I'm to help. I'm still very
1: happy pitchers? that I'm still with the twins organization. Again, I, you know, I, I love teaching the game, uh, uh, You know, with the WBC, it gives me an opportunity to work with young kids. Uh, It's something that uh, I've always, people ask, the sad part is a lot of people now, today's players will have Greg Maddox walk by and they won't ask him any questions. You know, how did you hold this? How would you hold that? You know, they talk about my curveball, you know, that I had a a good curveball. Yes, I did. I had a lot of confidence in throwing it over at any time. But my fastball set up my curveball. If I could not locate my fastball inside part of the plate, outside, especially down and away, that was my bread and butter, the two-seamer, uh, then my curveball's not that good. It's like you're talking about Scherzer. If he's those all curveballs or sliders, well, hitters are going to adjust. So you have to work both sides of the plate, and you have to trust your fastball. Your fast, My fastball was my best pitch. I talk about my curveball. That, that was my strikeout pitch.
0: Another thing I learned as a scout sitting behind home plate, you look at the pitchers that I think deception is a very important part of pitching. I mean, hitters don't pick up the ball on some hitters, on some pitchers. Other pitchers later on way back fly open and you see the ball before it's like even heading toward home plate. I was sitting next to Greg Maddox one night in uh, in Dodger Stadium. We pitched for us and Liscomb was pitching against us with the Giants and uh, he had kind of a violent delivery, not a really big guy. And I said, Greg, you think he's going to blow out? He said, he might not blow out, but he might tire out. But, He repeats his delivery and repeating your delivery. I think is very important for a pitcher at the same release point every time on each pitch and repeating delivery, but it gets back to pitch count again. If you only throw 60, 70 pitches, it's tough to repeat that delivery. So the more you throw, the better you have a chance of repeating that delivery. And I just think that the pitcher should be extended out 120, 130 pitches. And there's only a few guys that do that. Verlander might do that. Scherzer might do that, but they, they baby these guys. And it's just, it's too bad because, yeah, in the meantime, more guys get hurt, and if you don't, if you get hurt, you can't get better because you got to pitch to get better. So they get hurt, and then they don't get better because they don't throw enough to get better.
1: Well, it's it's a it's a new age of this game, but I think slowly they're going, they will get back to hopefully pitchers, uh, unless they change the rule that if you go seven innings, that's considered a complete game, no matter <laughs> if you uh, go nine or ten uh, in the game, but. I'd like to see it, but it has to start in the minor leagues. Uh, these kids are pitching in the minor leagues every five or six days, and they're expected to go five innings. How can you move up into an organization and then get to the big leagues and they want you to go six or seven innings when you haven't really done it in the minor leagues?
0: Well, I was look at your stats. I think in, you're 19 years old. You start in the minor leagues, get to the big leagues. and Overall, you pitched over 200 innings at each 18 or 19. I mean, right now, a kid signs out of college even – They're lucky to get 30 innings in, maybe 40. I mean, how are you going to get better? You pitch 30, 40 innings.
1: Yeah, and Bob, you mentioned too, there are certain hitters, and as you know, you need mound time, I think, to learn how to pitch. You know, I was 19 years Mm -hmm. old. I had a fastball and a curveball. That was it. You know, but I learned watching other guys, a changeup, you know, a, a two seam fastball. I learned that as time went on because of the way the hitters were were attacking me i guess uh and then you know you pick the brains of the guys that have been through it the jim Cotts and the, and the jim perry's and the teons and the boswell's when i first came up so you, you learn the game by asking questions and you talk about pitching uh so you know, it's, it's takes time. There were times, you know, like I'm going to mention, I gave up a lot of home runs. Ron Kittle, I think, hit the most off of me, nine of them. I remember I'm pitching for Cleveland. He's with the White Sox. He comes up the first time. Of course, when you know somebody has success against you, guess what? Ball one, ball two, you fall yeah. behind. <laughs> you have to come into the pitch. Boom. He had a home run his first at-bat. Next time up, I said, I'm done. Next time, second time, you could talk to Ron Kittle, but I hit him right in the ribs. I thought, you know, get him off the plate. He sees me too good. All right, third time up, I threw a breaking ball down and away, in his third at-bat, he hit it over the right field fence. I said, I give up, okay? What do I do? And I sat there, and I watched, and I watched, I think we had uh, Mark uh, Eichhorn. um, He was a sidearm pitcher, And I was watching him the the next day against Kittle in relief. And Kittle didn't have that same swing because of the angle. So the next time I faced Ron Kittle, I didn't throw from on top. I went sidearm. And I had better success against him. There are some hitters that you can see that see the ball coming out of your hand as soon as you release it. And then other guys, you know, like you're talking about, Bob, they have a tough time adjusting. They don't pick up that ball right away. Right. You know the Tony Gwynns, the Rod Carew's, the Tony Olivas, the great hitters, Wade Boggs—they can pick up that ball right away, and you know it. And you just hope that you can make that one pitch to get a ground ball short, rather than that you know line drive double to uh, to left center. I
2: love
1: it.
2: With um. Bert, you mentioned your, your curveball being – and that's been a signature pitch being so productive because of your fastball. Um, and, and I love how you described the different at-bats. When you were pitching um, – or when you were off the mound, you were watching hitters and how they adjusted based on your, your verbiage. With today's, you know, dugout use of the iPads, are, are kids more focused on or are young men more focused on – them as opposed i think to you have to adjust to the, the stuff box. you
1: have that day again we're not computerized i always looked if i could get through the first three innings and, and two things the kind of stuff i have if my two seamers sinking if i have good location of my fastball down and away how my curveball is i'll mm-hmm. learn that in the first two innings also what is that umpire behind home plate giving me if he's giving me a little bit away well then i've got to if i go inside i have to miss hard inside, so, but I have to be able to hit that spot down and away. So there's the first three innings, to me, were always so important. I'm going to give up some runs in the first inning because I'm coming out of the bullpen. Now I get eight pitches. You're in that crowd atmosphere. You're not focused as well, I think, at the start of the game, as you would be later in the game because you've already gone through some tough times. So a lot of pitchers will give up runs in the first couple innings, but once you get them through that third inning, now they know. And I, I knew what my stuff was that day. How's my curveball breaking How's my fastball? How's my change up? And, uh, that's why I think, you know, you go deep into the ball game because you learn how to pitch rather than throw for five innings. Well, I think another thing, pitchers, young
0: pitchers, especially should throw more batting practice. Um, uh, if I had to do over again running the minor leagues, I'd have pitchers throw batting practice more often. I'm talking about batting practice, not pitching practice. Yeah. Now, early in spring training, when the pitchers start throwing off the mound, the first time they throw the hitters, I remember my first year in big league camp was with the Mets 1982, and they had some great pitchers. Saber was there, and uh, I remember a guy named Brent Gaff. And throwing standing behind the cage and watching these pitchers throw batting practice, it's amazing how much movement they got on the ball. They weren't trying to overthrow. They are just trying to throw maybe 80%. And the ball had great movement. Every one of them had a like great movement. And the hitter said, I can't hit that stuff. So I just think, especially young pitchers in the low-A ball or the, the double-A, even then in between starts, they should throw batting practice where they learn how to locate, change speeds. And, you know, changing speeds is probably the most important thing to get hitters
1: out. Yeah, you know, I remember in the early 70s, if uh, I had a bad outing, which I did, you know, and maybe you don't go, go three innings, uh, and I'd throw batting practice. My day off, rather than throwing on the mound, I would I would throw batting practice. A lot of guys did back then, but they, you know, the doctors now would say, "Oh my God, he's abusing his arm. You know, he can't do that." Well, I'd rather throw BP than throwing ten minutes uh, on the side.
0: That's good. I remember I played golf with Robin Roberts about thirty-five years ago. Sammy Ellis was my pitching coach in in my leagues, and yeah, uh, you know I ran the minus for Red Sox. But him and Robin were good friends. They played golf together, and outside uh, tampa there and he told me he pitched every fourth day and sometimes he threw batting practice in between starts yeah i said your arm ever hurt?" he said well it felt a little funny but the more i threw it the better it felt and i know from throwing batting practice i mean i threw batting practice every day when i was coaching and it's like you know first few throws might hurt a little bit but the more you threw it the better you were and i remember in kansas city he sold for 20 minutes i kept looking back i thought the clock stopped and it was like 105 <laughs> degrees on a turf, but yeah, the more you throw, the better you
1: feel, and that's what it's all about. And I got to pitch with some great guy, Gaylord Perry. I learned so much from him, not a spitter, but uh, I learned so much from him, the determination and you know, from Jim Cott. I was very fortunate at a young age to be around guys that had a lot of success already, but wasn't they were not afraid to share that success into my little pea brain that I have.
2: Who are some guys now? I know you've been around the Twins uh, for for a lifetime. Are there uh, guys to now say, that are not trying to really pick their brain? uh
1: Joe Ryan, I think that's why I mentioned his name a couple of times. I I see a lot of potential in him. Uh, I think that uh, he needs to learn uh, he's got to came up with a very good changeup, but he's got to come up with, and I'm going to talk to him in spring training about it. And I have his phone number and I've been thinking about calling him on it, but I don't want to step on the the toes of the pitching coach, you know. Uh, what his winter workout will be. But I like that two-seam sinking fastball. As long as you control that fourth-seam fastball, and I'm just throwing fastball here, if you could throw that, if it's a right-handed hitter, and you can hit that spot down and away for a strike six out of ten times, then you know that's the only pitch I wanted coming out of of the bullpen was control of my fastball. The two-seamer is a fastball down and away to a left-hander. So if I face, say, Ricky Henderson to start a ball game and he gets on first base, if he doesn't steal, if there's a left-handed hitter up, say, like north, I want that two-seamer down and away. And I'm already visualizing if I make the right pitch, and a lot of it is the art of visualization when you're out on that mound of making that quality pitch, you see it in your mind. Now you have to execute it. I'll throw that two-seamer down and away to North He'll on a ground ball to my shortstop we'll turn a double play. That's the way you have to think that power positive thinking has to be with you out there all the time. And you have to visualize the pitch before you throw it. So, yeah, it is the art of pitching.
2: That's the attack mode. Yeah. What, what, now you mentioned st- stepping on toes for pitching coaches. You're a Hall of Fame pitcher, one of the most accomplished pitchers in our, in our great game. Um, how would your vi- or advice or well, why would your I, advice I just, be uh, you know, they have, stepping on toes?
1: They have all the analytics in front of them. They have so many cameras, and I think they, they almost are putting everybody under one hat. And I don't mean to be this in a negative way, but players today, I don't think they appreciate what we did. I appreciated what Gibson's and the Spawns and all those guys did prior to me. It's a different era. But if you don't want to learn the game, if you just want to go out there every fifth day and throw five innings, you know, that's your makeup. You know, I, I don't understand that. Why would you not want to be that guy that when you come in at a dugout or, or come to the clubhouse that day, a reliever will come and say, oh, your are pitching good. Or, You're starting. I got a day off. You know, that's what you want. You want to be that guy that's going to go deep into the ballgame so you don't have to use, like you mentioned earlier, eight guys in a ball game. Yeah. You know, you might use one or two. Uh, when I came up in 1970, there yeah. was a nine-man pitching staff. You know, four starters, a couple guys out in the bullpen that were waiting for one of us to break down how I got up when Tion Boswell got hurt. And then I might have Stan Williams and Ron Paranowski were out there, you know, in the 70s, uh, the closers and setup guys. But, you know, now everybody has a role. You're a sixth-inning pitcher. You're a seventh-inning pitcher. Goose Gossage, those guys were seven, eight, nine-inning pitchers, you know. But uh, so, well, yeah. when I came
0: through the minor leagues or ran the minor leagues, we had, uh, you know, managing the minor leagues, we had, you know, starting pitchers. You start, you improve your arm strength, you improve your secondary pitches, and maybe when you get to double A or maybe triple A, you become a closer. Like we had Randy Myers. He started all the way through, got the triple-A. mean triple-A, we made him a closer. He became a hell of a closer. But he had arm strength. He built his arm strength up for three or four years before that by being a starter in the minor leagues.
1: You even now, look like, at the World Series now. I mean, what are they going into game four with the bullpens? Yeah. Come on. You're I telling know. me you don't have people that can go at least five or six innings? That, that's what's sad for the game when you have to have a bullpen day in what might be you know a deciding game in a world series right well they moved these kids to the bullpen
0: early in their career they never really learn how to pitch they put them in a bullpen in college they get drafted out of college at high round because they're closers or you know setup guys even but i mean to me you got to, to learn how to pitch you know we learn how to pitch to pitch innings repeat your delivery uh, command your secondary pitches locate your fastball which makes you a better pitcher we had a thing sammy ellis was a minor league uh, coordinator pitching coordinator and he had a thing to get from rookie league to A ball. You got to be able to do this. A ball next, you got to be able to do this. It all started with A ball. You had to, I mean, rookie league. you had to be able to learn how to throw a changeup, which is probably one of the best pitches in the game to neutralize the opposite you know, right-hander against the left-hander and so forth. But, but we had criteria to move to the next level, but it was all about location, change of speeds. And, you know, it wasn't so much about, you know, velocity's nice because you can, you know, get a lot of mistakes, you get away a lot of mistakes, you get great velocity. But when you try to manufacture velocity,
1: everything flattens out, and that's when you get ripped. You see, I'd like to see a four-man staff in the minor leagues. I think you learn like you Bob say. The more you throw, the better off you're going to be. But I remember 1969, my first year, just out of high school, we had a manager, Fred Waters, in rookie ball in Sarasota, Florida, And of course, all high school, we were trying to impress everybody on our ball club. There's about 30 of us in rookie ball trying to get to the next level. And he finally had had enough. Uh, He brought us, sat us all down in the clubhouse and every other word was a foul language word (laughs) coming out of his mouth. And he said, you'll be lucky. This is what he said. There's 30 of us said, look around the room, gentlemen. You'd be lucky if two of you ever get to the big leagues. And uh, sure enough, I'm sitting – of course, I'm sitting in my locker and looking around, I'm, everybody's probably saying, ooh, I wonder who the other one is, you know. <laughs> and it was. He was absolutely right. Jim Hughes, Bluegill Hughes, uh, uh, my roomie, my rookie year, he and I were the only two. And Jim Hughes was a successful pitcher for the Twins in the mid-'70s. He won 16 games one year, had a hell of a, a, a rookie season. But, uh, yeah, it, it's tough to get there. So if you're in the minor leagues and – These coaches and scouts see this one individual that they feel he might be able to move up quickly through the organization. Why would you have him pitch every five or six days? Get him out there every fourth day. You know, maybe, you know, have the 100 pitch count in the minor leagues, but get him to get out on that mound and learn how to pitch even better than maybe he does already by facing live hitters. You don't learn anything going into bullpen
0: well the pitch counts another thing i mean why is 100 pitches good for you and 100 pitch good for me i might need 90 you might need 120 right i mean again if you're a manager a pitching coach you can tell when a pitcher's tired he's dropping his arm he's losing his legs now you know he's getting tired he's elevating balls you know he's getting tired but the thing is even when you get a little bit tired let him keep pitching let him figure it out change speeds more you know take a little bit off the fastball and uh the good pitchers learn how to do that i mean zach cranky I was with him when he first came to the big leagues, probably the smartest pitcher I've ever been around in baseball. Yes. And he'd had it figured out. And he is a different personality. But Zach was smart and he knew what he was doing. I mean, one day in spring training, he threw all fastballs. And the coach, coach, pitching coach, and manager all ticked off at him. and said, What are you doing? He said, I just want to see if I can pitch my fastball. I just want to see what I can do. I yeah. want to try to go to location, you know, up and away, down and in, take a little bit off, add a little bit. And it didn't work out real well. But he said, I learned how to use my fastball better by doing that. And I mean, this guy was a genius and yeah. he's still pitching. I don't know if he's going to pitch next year, but he's had a great career with not great velocity. But he but had
1: excellent control, right. excellent control. He was a pitcher. Right. He was a pitcher.
0: Well, again, it gets back to a pitcher that good, very athletic. You're very athletic. Do your athletic so, pitchers can... Pitchers
1: are the best athlete on the field. Well, except, for, short, except for shortstop. shortstop,
0: shortstop, shortstop. <laughs> <laughs> but, but you're right. There's some pitchers out there that are like bowling in a china shop, but... The guys who are very athletic are the ones that have success because they can adjust. They can control their body. That's a good word. You have to make the
1: adjustments. Yeah.
2: It would, uh, and then Either one of you guys can answer this question. With You know, you, you both talk very highly of the development of players, especially in the minor league systems. But Major League Baseball has reduced the amount of minor league teams. They've reduced the draft. And what we think is important on this network is... What used to be called the old bird dog scout, which would be in the neighborhoods, would be in the the zip codes, figuring out the makeup of these kids five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten times. Watch them fail, like like Merrill Kelly did, who spent time in the Korean League for God's sakes. But um, h- how how will that hurt Major League Baseball if at all? Uh, the reduction of those minor league systems, the development time, the reduction well, of the drafts, where they miss some players. Probably since you what, did what this would that? be
1: the best one to answer it. But when you were scouting somebody, uh, there was not only how he was throwing or how he was swinging a bat. There's a lot more elements that went into you looking to see if this guy's a potential major leaguer.
0: Well, all the good organizations have good evaluators, and you have to be able to evaluate your own players better than the other team's players. If you can evaluate your own players, you have a chance. But the problem with eliminating the minor league team is you've got to evaluate a kid sooner than you should evaluate him. His first year, half of them were scared, half them were nervous, half of them don't know what they're doing. He almost saw almost the first year out as far as evaluation. Especially high school kids. But, you know, when they cut out that New York Penn League and a half year A ball league, they don't realize what they did to the game. Now they're forcing guys to go from rookie league to A ball. And that's a big jump, especially some of these kids, Latin kids or high school kids. That's a big jump. I mean, when you come out of high school, you got to have success early. Now, kids come out of college, they've already had success as 18, 19 year olds in college. But if you come out of high school and all of a sudden you get overmatched, now you lose all your confidence. And you get you know you get destroyed. And now they evaluate you on what you're doing, and you have to make the evaluation too soon. You make it too soon, it's gonna be wrong. So a lot of kids I think have been released that if they played another year or two, who knows what could happen. I mean, they get a guy we have, uh Manessis. He played 10, 12 years in the minor leagues. He's a star now, he can hit. He never got the chance, but I remember seeing it with the Red Sox. Everybody knew he could hit, but now you get a chance in the big leagues and they hung on to him long enough that he became a star. But too many kids are getting evaluated too soon in their career and they never have a chance to blossom, so to speak, because a lot has to do with confidence, a lot has to do with experience, and success builds confidence and confidence builds success. But you have to give these young kids an extra year to get to where you think they're going to be. And you can look at tools, good stats, all the kind of stuff, but it's still, like Bert said, it's about the makeup. How tough is he? How bad does he want to play?
1: And you can't be afraid to fail. And you and you're talking about right. him, you know, twelve years in the minor leagues. You imagine what went through his mind year after year. Oh my God, I'm gonna have to go prove myself all over again. Well, you do. Right. That's the game. Right. You know, you can't you can't say, okay, I you know I had a great year. Okay, well, guess what? The page turned. Right. It's a new year. So how do you make yourself have a, another good year back to back?
0: Right. And every year you get a little bit smarter. You learn a little bit more about yourself. I mean, some of these guys hit enough home runs to be dangerous. So they trade hit home runs all the time and it just puts them in a slump. So, I mean, there's a lot to it. And yeah, I just think that when you uh, diminish the supply, demand gets greater. And all of a sudden you're putting guys in the big leagues or upper levels that aren't ready for that and they fail.
2: That's a good point, point. and we we've, we've kept Bert for almost an hour here. I've got one more it's question. Okay, I get paid by the hour. I'll let That's you all right. Fire away <laughs> to, to finish. <laughs> for one hour you get for two hours. <laughs> we, um, you know, you, you, your journey's been a, a long one, a successful one, but it started back on a pitching mound that your dad built oh, for. Yeah, what well, do you remember my pops about that uh, fell
1: in, in love with the game one. of baseball coming from Holland you know we went to a lot of soccer games when we came to the United States I didn't start playing baseball till I was about probably nine or ten years old I started as a catcher because uh, uh my my parents couldn't afford uh you know buy me a glove and and shoes and all that stuff and I had a paper out in the morning and uh even Fox did a little interview with my mother uh, god rest her soul but uh uh, she said uh, that uh, Bert wanted to play Little League, and he said, You know, we, we didn't think, uh, you know, we could afford for him to play. And in a paper out, I came home one day and I said, Mom, Mom, I got a good arm because I threw the paper on top of the roof. <laughs> and uh, they let me play Little League. I started off as a catcher. And I remember my first Little League coach, Mr. Price, which was a fireman, he uh, saw, I guess, that I was throwing a ball back harder to pitcher than he was to me. And he asked me if I wanted to pitch and he gave me a glove and, uh, you know, the rest is history. But I fell in love with baseball. My pops uh, would catch, play catch with me uh, when I got home. But as I got older, I started throwing a little bit harder. Uh, So we we used to at our old house in Garden Grove, California, we had a horseshoe pit in the backyard. My pops and I and my brothers and my sisters, we'd play horseshoes all the time. He built a mound behind one horseshoe pit. Uh, Went out and got dirt and clay and did a good job of building a mound. And on the other side of the horseshoe pit, uh, he put a a chain link fence kind of like with a canvas. We came up with a canvas and put a little strike zone on that canvas. And I had maybe, you know, five or six baseballs. uh, And I would get on that mound and throw it into the uh, into the canvas. The ball would fall and I would go retrieve them do it again over and over and over I love loved to throw the baseball either against that canvas or against a, a cinder block wall whatever it took I, I threw the baseball
0: it's just a good example of someone who became great because he loved to do it i mean you got to love the game you can talk about you know these lily coaches or fathers that you know push the kids into the game well the kid's going to have to love it to be any good i remember, I remember throwing when i went to yukon and throwing balls off the wall and a field, uh, field hills uh, feel them and so on to the next world, like I guess, making a double play. But that was fun to me. A lot of times, if practice isn't fun, you're probably not going to be real successful.
1: But uh, I, I agree. My, but you know what? Part of it, too, my dad being Dutch and stubborn, and he kind of put that into me, too, because oh, I'm stubborn. Uh, he used to go to the baseball games in high school, and this is great. I don't know if we have enough time for this, but he would always yell at the umpires. There are other fathers that would say, boy, this umpire is really bad. And my dad was very vocal. He sang in a choir at Garden Grove Community Church. He was very aggressive. He would start giving the home plate umpire heck. Well, his name was Joe. Finally, the umpire, my dad's name was Joe. Finally, the umpire at home plate would say, Joe, if you don't be quiet, your good team's going to forfeit. And then, you know, he'd go on. He said, Joe, if you don't get off the school grounds right now, your team's going to forfeit. So he would leave the school grounds at Santiago High School. And when he left, we knew where he was going. He used to, because there's a chain-link fence with houses behind home plate, he would drive around, go into somebody's backyard, hang on the fence, and then let the umpire continue to have it. So he says, you can't kick me off now in his Dutch accent. And he'd give him hell. So, yeah, I mean, uh, half the fun was going and watching my pops react to, uh, you know, the umpires. So no, we, we had a lot of fun. I, I, you know, I was lucky, too, when I went to high school that uh, I was around great guys that just loved the game of baseball. We used to go to Angel games all the time as a group. And uh, one story, if you have uh, at, in Anaheim, when the Angels came into Anaheim in 1966, I was a sophomore in high school, freshman in high school, somewhere in there. Best two years of my life. being been in the same grade. <laughs> but, uh, but you know what, uh, we'd go to ball games and we would, because the Angels didn't draw well, we would go down the left or right field line and they cut it off like a first base or third base. We would sit there and watch the game. And if a ball was hit into down the right field line foul, we'd run out and try to get the ball. Well, about the eighth inning, ninth inning, top of the ninth, we go up into the restroom and we go up and just sit and wait till the game's over. Game finally ended. In Anaheim, they didn't do a lot of work on the field. Uh, they covered whole plate and also the pitcher's mound. We would crawl down when all the lights were out and uh, riders were up there typing. You could hear the typewriters back in the 60s. When they started stopping typing, we'd jump over the railing, go into a dugout, and then see if we could find any broken bats or balls or whatever. Had a lot of rosin bags. And then we would go along the behind home plate, go into the other dugout. And then we'd, by be about a half hour, we'd just sit there and talk to a game of baseball. Now it's pitch black in Anaheim. There's about five or six of us. Gene Schleck, Terry Lindsey, Mark Hawk, Steve Keithley, Tom Hirely, and myself. We were a gang, basically. But we would. Tom Hirely signed with the Braves. He would go to home plate. I would go out to the mound. Uh... Then when the other guys, Mark, Mark Hawk uh, would go to third, Gene Schleck would go to short, Steve Keefley out in the left field. And then we'd say, Oh, I forgot about Terry Lindsay. He went out to center, but he would, I would say, here's the pitch. It's a long fly ball. to field. We'd all, it's pitch black, right? We all run <laughs> out toward left field, go over the wall and go home. We didn't do, <laughs> we weren't vicious. We just wanted to be on that field, right? Less than a year later, I'm on that same mound with the lights on. Think about that, in a major league uniform, less than a year later, I'm on that mound. Well, my first pitch, George Betterwall was catching me, called for a fastball. I remember who was probably a Sandy Alomar. First pitch, fastball. I started my windup, my right leg did not move. I was so nervous <laughs> because a year earlier, I was. Yeah. it was dark. And yeah. all of a sudden the lights are on. So amazing. Yeah,
0: it's was amazing. It's they- amazing
1: the stories uh, I remember because of the game of baseball.
0: Well, Dave has some kids that are, uh, just for your benefit, Dave has some kids that are very athletic, and Dave does a great job coaching them. And I was impressed with some of the conversations we had when you talked about fundamentals, all so your kids question you about, what about this, what about that? So his kids are very smart baseball-wise, which is most important. I mean, the best, the smart kids make good baseball players. They don't to be smart in school necessarily, but you have to be a smart baseball player. And the fact that what you spend, time you spend with them, Dave, is. All going to pay off in the long run.
1: They're like, having fun. They got to yeah. love the game.
2: That's it. That's what we tell them all the they time. If you enjoy it and you love it, nobody can ever take it away from you. And they, from what you guys, been, I did the same thing as a young player coming up, as a high school player, college player, pro player. I clung to the older guys. I clung to the guys that had been there and done that before. Those were my – I'd much prefer hanging around them with them than people my own age. I wanted to learn. And uh, fortunately, my kids are like that too, but they also have the benefit of these podcasts as well because they'll sit after podcasts and take notes. It's like school for them. And it's part of their homeschool, oddly and enough. It's we a problem with baseball just now. Some of the older guys are great uh, coaches.
0: They're out of the game. I mean, Bert goes to spring training. Very rarely, they ask him questions. I mean, you should pick his brain. I mean, what I learned from guys older than me. I remember Dick Howser was a manager of the Yankees. When I was with the Yankees, he came to spring training. In a minor league, so I used to pick his brain all the time. And, you know, that's how you learn. But unfortunately, a lot of these older guys are sitting home, would love to do something just part-time, but they don't have them. They have guys who are incompetent to a certain extent trying to teach these kids how to play, and it's just not right. No one's teaching coaches how to coach.
1: You know, I, I get a kick out of watching the World Series right now when they introduce the players before the game. Of course, like the manager goes out and then the starting lineup, and they're giving high fives, fists to each other. And you watch how many trainers and how many uh, analytic department are out there. It's like they got almost like two teams. You got the the trainers and the analytic department, and then all of a sudden there are the uh, reserve players. But uh, no, back in the seventies we had one trainer. You know, we had coaches. We we had no trainers when I was
0: playing, but I knew how to tape ankles, so I was a trainer. But uh, (laughs) when I got hurt, nobody took care of me. But that was nineteen sixty-six. But then. but, you know they have you know they have sleep coaches, they have nutritionists, which is fine. That's but great. They they lack quality coaches at a lot of places.
2: Yeah. Well, we uh we're, we're closing on that hour, Bob. What kind of what last questions would you have for Bert? How, Bert, how do you want to leave our audience today? What, what what's something we didn't get in that well, you want to the share? The
0: thing is, I think what he said, you know, running the conditioning program for pitchers, even regular players, I think needs to be spoosed up a little bit, and I would think that. Baseball should learn from history. You know, Burt Leavelle, one of the best pitchers ever in the game of baseball. What did he do to make himself a good pitcher? And he said he ran a lot. And uh, like you said, I know one organization didn't believe in running at all for pitchers. So, I mean, somebody got to learn from history.
1: Oh, well, Johnny Sane was that way. He, he didn't believe pitchers ran, but Jim Cotton—you could ask Kitty about that. Instead of running, he went out dancing.
2: Yeah, oh. that's right. I was going to bring that up. He was—I uh, played Saturday Night Fever day I heard that yeah, about him. But he, the, that was, you know, that done was, done was night, what his
1: makeup was. Uh, but I think the biggest thing that, that I'd like to leave, as far as uh, you know, for kids out there and parents, is dad, mom, let your youngster that's ten, eleven, twelve years old, let him have fun. Don't expect him to be the best player. And if he is good, a, a good player, and he You know, have fun. Leave the umpires alone. Uh, You know, just go out there, enjoy what your son is doing or daughter is doing. Let them enjoy the game, and they will dictate in time what they want to do. Some of them play little league, and they say, "I don't want to play anymore." That's good. You know, they might uh, come up later in life and find a cure for cancer. Who knows? You know, sports is sports. Have fun with it, but. Get an education. Get uh you know, get your life in order. And as parents, do the best we can, but don't be hard on them. Right.
2: That's a great message. That's a great way to close it out. I uh we appreciate Bob. Great interview today. And Bert, thanks so much for spending time with us. I think everything you said was uh was phenomenal for our entire audience. Seventy-four countries Perfect. out there, including the Netherlands. We have them on our list.
1: Not, and, sure not much.
2: Yep. We, we, uh, we just want to thank them for. That's <laughs> well,
1: all right. They <laughs> turned out you, <laughs> so we're good thank with that.
2: We're good with here. Yeah, no worries. Boy, you're welcome back to the thank show you. anytime. And I'll tell Kitty, you said hello. I've got him and a couple hours here for his show. And to our 74 countries, 55,000-plus subscribers, thank you for your support. You got us on iHeartRadio, one of the most powerful podcast networks going. And we're one of their heavy hitters now. Because of that, we got you a little bit of something out there. So go on to Blackout Coffee, uh, to 20% off. Use the code DAVID, D-A-V-I-D, all capital 20. You get 20% off your whole orders. Order your Christmas coffee now. Hand it out as gifts later on down the road. And for us at the network here, real voice to the game, touch
0: them all with Bob Schaefer. Well, thank, you. Three, 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 thank you. Thank you, so much time, for a great your time, your expertise, and your stories. It was awesome. Oh, you're welcome. Kitty, kitty, kitty. <laughs> I <laughs> know what you think, you
2: Wanna know what you do, and I don't think you know, but I know that you do, cause your dollar ain't shit, and it's taxed to no end, do the rich man,
1: on the rich man.